You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome from me as well. I'm Rich. Um, Melissa and Noble have done a great job of making us all feel welcome, but let me reiterate, especially if you're new here, you're here at church being like, what is all this kind of stuff going on? Then it's great to have you. We love having guests here. We've got them every week. Um, For those of you who haven't been around the last couple of weeks, let me give you the context of what we're doing at the moment. During our preaching, we're running through the book of 1 Timothy, which is in the New Testament. And uh, I found this week a one-sentence summary of 1 Timothy. Paul gives his protege Timothy instruction on how to lead a church with sound teaching and godly example. So that's it in a sentence. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to um, a guy, Timothy, uh, who is taking care of a church in what we would call Turkey today. And there are some dodgy teachers around. There are some people who are really spreading some pretty unhelpful teaching. Um, They're even saying things like, why don't you give me all of your money, and then God will guarantee to give you anything you want. Uh, That type of stuff is not helpful for a church, and what uh, Paul is saying to Timothy is, Tim, stand up, step up, lead from the front, hold on to real, true Christianity, be a man of God. And that's what we're going to see in the verse today. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6. So what are we going to look at today? Well, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, be a man, but flee from all of this unhelpful teaching, from corrupt, distorted desires, and pursue something better. So we're looking at similar verses to what Yvette was looking at last week, but we're going to look a little bit more at this idea of fleeing. I have called this Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, fleeing and pursuing but in modern-day London. So the whole idea of this sermon isn't just to say what was Paul saying to Timothy, but what are we going to do in our lives in 2018 in Ealing in London? We are actually ideally placed as a church to step up, to stand up, to speak up for godly principles in terms of money and in terms of some of the stuff we're going to look at today. I found out this week that there are more than 5,000 multimillionaires in London. That's more multimillionaire, mega-rich residents than any other capital city in the world. And in London, pleasures, or pleasures in inverted commas, you having what you want, when you want, whenever you want, whatever the consequences are, everywhere, on every corner, every university, every workplace. Actually, I'm hoping today it's going to be practical for us to look at what are we fleeing from and what are we pursuing today in London, as well as just back in the day with Tim, our friend. And then we're going to end today's study by opening up, what is repentance? Is there a way for us to go from just doing things wrong and saying sorry and then doing it again? Is there a potential for change? And I think we can find freedom, and I think that's going to be relevant for us all today. And along the way as well, if you're willing to come with me, I've got a few challenges for men to be men, because Paul is very much saying to Timothy, be a man of God. So I hope you're up for that. Let's read the passage. So um, Paul is saying, he's talking about the vibe of this dodgy teaching. And he's saying it's classic for a dodgy teacher. To, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Here's a key line for today. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into a trap. And many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, and here's our key verse for today, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. I'm going to read that last verse again because this is where we're going to park for the next little while. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Okay, the next slide is going to show us the little the kind of roadmap of what we're going to do. We're going to look at this idea of fleeing first. And then we're going to look at this idea of pursuing next. And then we're going to have a little bit at the end where we look at repentance as an opportunity for us to really understand what does it mean to go from habitual sin to actually being free. Okay, so Paul says, we're going to look at fleeing first. There's a load of nonsense in this false teaching. And they're craving controversy. They're liking arguments. But on top of that, they love money, these false teachers. They're saying, actually, you can't be satisfied in Jesus alone. And Timothy says, no, be a man. Flee from that kind of nonsense. Fleeing is like emergency language. It's like crisis. It's like alarm bells going on. He says, you don't want destruction in your life, and you don't want corruption and kind of that stink of this awful teaching in your life. But more than that, Timothy, step up, because you don't want that in your church. This is the kind of stuff that can corrupt a church. What about us in 2018 in Ealing? What kind of stuff are we going to flee from? And what kind of stuff are we going to pursue? Well, my summary would be that the same stuff that Paul is telling Timothy to flee from and the same stuff that he's telling him to pursue applies to us today. So I want to unpack this for us in our lives. We are called just as much as Timothy to be men and women of God. But this fleeing isn't just a one-off. He's not just saying run away and then you're sorted. This actually is something that Yvette talked about last week. This is going to be fleeing and fleeing and fleeing and fleeing. It's going to be a steadfast, enduring race to say, I'm going to keep running from and keep running to. So we're going to see that today. The first thing we're going to look at fleeing from is something that these false teachers were talking about in the church in Ephesus, and that is greed. So, I've got a picture of a real fancy car here because, you know, that seemed like greed to me. I don't know what greed means to you, but Paul says to Timothy, flee from the love of money, which is a trap. It's a snare. But he also says this line, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So he's contrasting these two things, loving money and being content and finding that's great gain in your life. Tim Keller leads a church called Redeemer in New York. And it's a very similar uh, type of church and culture to where we are now. So we often steal lines from him. And he was leading a series of seven men's breakfasts. I don't know if you've ever been to a men's breakfast. We've not done one here at Redeemer before. On the topics of the seven deadly sins. And um, his wife said to him before one of them, are you advertising which topics you're covering in the future, which deadly sins you're covering? And he said, yeah, 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 we're advertising. We're letting people know. She said, I bet you, Tim... I don't know if she actually bet, probably not, um, 
that the one on greed will be the least well attended. Of the seven deadly sins, the one on greed will be the least well attended. And she was right. And he writes in his summary of this kind of thought about greed and covetousness and wanting more. The thing with greed is, he says, everybody's aware it exists, but they think it's someone else. Actually, the bar of what is greedy is just above where I am. It's just the person next to me, not me. So, the passage says, don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul says, God wants us to love God and love people. So I've put it up on the screen like this. Love God and love people. You know, uh, some people come to Jesus and say, you know, sum up the, the law for me. And he says, love God and love people. That's not just a phrase, that's Jesus' priority for us. And what we can do is we can use money Oh, no, sorry, go back to the last one. You can use money and we can use things to love God and to love people. But our hearts are distorted. And the church here is getting distorted. And the teachers are distorting them. And Paul's saying to Timothy, man up, step up. This is the message. We love God and we love people. We use money and things. But the distortion is the other way around, isn't it? It's that all too easily we begin to say, actually, we love money. And we love things, so we end up using God and using people in our pursuit of them primarily. So Paul's trying to orientate them back and says, get the word out there. Be more interested in the giver than in the gifts. So covetousness is another way that the Bible talks about greed. Covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. And I think that's something helpful for us to bear in mind. Let's break down the way that our hearts naturally go. This might be a revelation to you, but I think most of you know this is the way we think. The more we have, the more we start to feel self-sufficient. And that's a nice feeling. And when we feel self-sufficient, we begin to feel like we're in control. Deep breath, we're in control. We can handle anything that comes along. When we're in control of our lives, what happens? Well, then we become overconfident. We lose our humility. We lose our teachability. We're not even sure we're sitting here bothering to listen. We're quite comfortable. We're okay. Do we need the Word of God? Do we need a challenge today? That could be any of us today, feeling, you know what? Self-sufficient, comfortable. I'm in control. And we end up loving the gifts, not primarily loving and pursuing, committing our lives to the giver. John Ortberg's written a book called When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And it's a good book. I'd recommend it if you're interested in reading more about greed. It's a a topic that we could all learning, do with learning more about. But he says, actually, as time goes on, we begin to expect certain luxuries. So he says in 1970, 11% of the U.S., when people were surveyed, said that air conditioning was a necessity, 11% in 1970. And by 2010, it was more than 65%. But what's changed there? It's just a cultural expectation, isn't it? It's just that we are upping our game in terms of what we see as, well, that's not greedy, that's just us, isn't it? That's just fine. And another interesting thought, he says, There was a poll where respondents, on average, said that 21% of Americans were rich. So you ask the average person on the street and say, I'd say 20-ish percent of people are rich. But when they were asked, the survey came back that only 0.5% of all surveyed said that they thought they were rich. But the two things can't both be true, can they? John Altberg sums it up this way. Everyone thinks they need one thing to make themselves rich. More. It's a good book. So I've put it on screen if you do want to buy it. 
grab that one. So the love of money, Paul says, is a trap. Timothy, step up. It's a trap. A hunger for material gain, a desire to drive a Range Rover, to have luxury watches and cars, a desire to have everything you could possibly want. is something that the church in Ephesus and other churches that Paul writes to are battling within the culture in their day. Just this idea that you just have whatever you want. But actually, Paul's saying that desire, not just in this verse, but in other verses, that desire can overtake a man. That can overtake you. Man of God. Redeemer, woman of God and Redeemer. Have we settled? Have we settled? Is money and stuff what we're after? Jesus puts it a challenging way, doesn't he? He tells the parable of the soils and said that some, feet, some seeds fall among thorns and the thorns grow up and choke it. And he interprets the parable this way. The seed is the word of God. The seed sown among thorns is interpreted that the cares of the world The delight in riches, the desire for other things, enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's Jesus' words to us. Is money bad? No. Okay, so Paul writes over and over again to the churches saying, this is a problem in society and a cultural expectation around money and things. John Piper says, test yourself. Have you learned your attitude towards money from the Bible or have you absorbed it from contemporary merchandising? Are we just slaves to the adverts we see? So how are you doing on this one? If this is a challenge for us today as much as it was a challenge for them then, how are you doing on this one? Do you love God primarily and love people? Use money and stuff. Two lies. I want to go quickly through two lies about money and possessions in London in 2018. This is right now in our city, in our borough, in our neighborhoods. Two lies. Number one, that money and things give security. And number two, that money and things give happiness. Neither of those are true. Money and things give security. Well, actually, let me tell you, wealth is uncertain. Stuff is uncertain. We eventually lose all our stuff before we die or after we die. At the greatest crisis in your life, when you need contentment and hope and security more than any other time, money and all your possessions will take wings and fly away. They will let you down. At best, they are fair-weather friends. And you enter eternity with nothing of what you accumulate here on earth. So imagine all of us here, we enter eternity on a plane together, which is a way of saying we're all on a flight and it crashes and we die. Imagine that. But before we crash, you look around, and actually, you've got somebody here who's a a really well-known politician, an MP, and then probably Reese over here, he can be our example. He's an executive. He's, he works in the city. He works at Deloitte like I do. Like he's, he's all over him. He's got everything he needs. And you've got, um, you've got some rich playboy and his partner. And they're just living the life, doing whatever they want. But then you've got a little kid, a little kind of kid from the, from the block around here as well. You've got all of those. They all enter eternity in a plane crash. After they crash, they all stand before God, utterly stripped of every credit card, bank account, luxury watch, past success, title, and Dorchester Hotel reservation. They've got absolutely nothing in their hands. They're all on a level ground. The poor kid and the multimillionaire. How tragic on a day like that will the lover of money seem? Someone put it this way, that pursuing riches on earth and arriving empty-handed... Is like a man who spends his whole life collecting train tickets and in the end is so weighed down by the collection, he misses his last train. 
Paul says in this verse, we brought nothing into the world and we're going to take nothing with us. Okay, back to those two lies. Money and things give happiness. Isn't that true? Well, actually, let me tell you, you'll never get enough. It's addictive. It says in the Old Testament, those who love money never have enough. It's an itch that can't be scratched. It is a desire that will never be satisfied. We settle for fleeting pleasures that don't satisfy our deepest souls. Buying things contributes nothing to the heart's capacity for joy. I was reading this beautiful description this week of how nature and human relationships supersede money and possessions. How how much more valuable is an embrace from a loved one after a long day than a new gadget or a new toy? How much more can nature satisfy than just traveling around on fancy planes, staying in fancy hotels, and going from meeting to meeting. Actually, I thought that was true, but as I read, I thought, you know what's an even higher standard of satisfaction and joy than that? Jesus Christ. Over here, if you're going to put a one end of the spectrum, just the collection of money and stuff, that's not going to satisfy. Even people who don't believe the Bible would say relationships and nature can be more enduringly satisfying. But over here, the gold standard is Jesus Christ himself, is knowing and living an adventure with Jesus. If you drop dead right now, would you take with you a payload of pleasure in God, or would you stand before him with a spiritual cavity where covetousness used to be? So is money bad? Is money bad? Actually, it's possible that you could want a pay rise for the power and the success and the luxury, and that would be bad. But it could be that you're content with what you've got. You've found great gain in godly contentedness. And actually, what you're looking for then is extra money for generosity, to fund a ministry, to give extravagantly. If you're not a Christian here, maybe you're thinking, what on earth is this sermon going on about? I would say a summary of the Bible's teaching about money for you is don't leave it too late to find out that it won't satisfy you. Don't leave it too late. Okay, so that's our pit stop on greed. We're looking today at this idea of fleeing from stuff. Paul's saying to Timothy, Tim, be a man, flee. There are a couple of other times that Paul says flee. Once in 2 Timothy and once in 1 Corinthians. I just want to take a pit stop in those for a second because I think those apply as well to when we're thinking about fleeing. So those two verses are going to come up on the screen, the two other times that Paul talks about fleeing. He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We're going to go there. We're going to look at these verses. Okay, so Paul says, flee from youthful passions. And what he's saying in this verse isn't actually to do with sex. What he's saying in this verse is, there were people in the church then who were just really loved a good argument. They really loved a good controversy. So he's saying, in your church, if there are people or if there are occasions where there's a controversy that's just being stirred up, or people are enjoying, like a, a youthful passion, like a a grumpy, angry teenager looking just to have an argument, enjoying stirring up something. Just, just don't go anywhere near it. Don't go anywhere near it. And then we find he says, flee sexual immorality. 
I was a teenager growing up in a good church, in a good youth group. So when I heard sermons or little talks about fleeing, they were all, always about sexual sin. It was always a sense of, um, rather than hang around sexual sin, rather than just let it have some part in your life, run away, run away. I'm sure if you grew up in a church, you heard that sermon, uh, or you heard that in your youth group. And I think that's good teaching. As Christians... Sexual sin, actually for anybody, sexual sin has a spiritual component to it. This verse on the previous slide says, actually, it's almost unique. It's not just a sin against God, it's a sin against your own body. And as Christians in a church in London in 2018, we shouldn't be quiet about this. We shouldn't be quiet about sexual sin in our church. And we shouldn't be quiet about it in our homes. And the room becomes quite awkward. (laughs) But I think we should tackle this. I think we should go for it. So, sexual sin covers a range of issues. But I've got some stats on porn specifically. And I've got this from Covenant Eyes, which is a service in the US which helps keep Christians off porn by making their web usage something that's shared with trusted friends. On one website, these are just going to come up on the screen altogether. On one website, over the course of 2016, the world consumed four and a half billion hours of porn just on that one website. That translates, start video, stop finish, do the next one, to 5,246 centuries worth of material in a year. And it starts young. If you're a parent here, the first exposure to porn among men is 12 years old on average. Think about that one. 79% of 18 to 30-year-old Americans say they watch porn at least once a month. Say they do. 76% of 18 to 30-year-old American women report they watch porn at least once a month. That's not a massive difference between the two. 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. Guys, porn isn't a taboo anymore. This is something that people are quite happy to talk about, certainly teenagers and young adults. But would they tell you if you were a mum or dad of a teenager, well, 71% of teens hide their online behavior from their parents. We're not going to spend ages on this today. I just want us not to be a church that doesn't talk about this stuff. I want our homes, our marriages, our parenting not to be scared to talk about what is their sin that we need to address. Kezia and I have, over the years, have watched sermons about marriage and we've read books and we've we've come over topics like this. And actually the most helpful thing we've had, and this is my encouragement to you today, is an overriding sense that actually if you're a married couple, you should just talk You should not be scared to talk. If you're married, why don't you have a conversation about what desires you're yet to really flee from? If you're a man, I said along the way we'd probably give some challenges to men. If you're a man, you lead your marriage, you lead your home. It's you that should step up first and say, we need to talk or we should talk about some of this stuff. If you're not married, go and get some prayer, go and speak to someone soon or even today. Fleeing from sexual sin can start with bringing it out into the light. Um, Some reading that I recommend, uh, just to finish this, is a book called Porn Again Christian, which I think is quite a fun title, by a guy called Mark Driscoll. And this is a free ebook that you can download. Anybody can get it on their phone or read it. If you're struggling with this stuff or you want to be able to have a good conversation with someone in your family or a trusted Christian friend or your parents or your kids, this is really, really good as a conversation starter. It's really short. It's easy to read. Okay, so that is our fleeing bit done over. Everyone can breathe a little bit, a little less awkward the next stuff. Okay, so Paul says, don't only flee from stuff, but also pursue stuff. 
Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So Paul says, instead of riches and stirring up controversy and just having corrupt desires, Timothy, you should pursue some things. These days, we see a great emphasis, don't we, on being in shape. I am not a physical specimen of somebody who goes to the gym a lot. Um, Hands up here if you have spent money this year in 2018 so far on either subscription to a gym or going to some classes or some workout equipment or a workout video or some running shoes or something that will help you get fitter. Hands up. I'm in that category. If you spent some money, some time, some energy on that one. Okay, so when Paul says pursue godliness, what he's talking about is overall spiritual health. So what he's saying is you should be looking to pursue not just physical health, But this idea of keeping our hearts, our souls, our emotions, our thoughts, our motives, our words healthy, fit, in good shape, in good form. If you're going to spend money on health, think this year. How are you going to spend some money and some time on your spiritual health? Are you going to buy a book? Are you going to book into a class? Are you going to go to a conference? Are you going to get an album? Come on, we should be investing in some spiritual health and godliness. And that's what he's saying to pursue. He says this word steadfast. We're just going to bring up the words that he says to pursue. And he said this, says this word steadfastness. And what he's saying here is, actually, although the culture around you in London might value money and possessions, sexual desires, getting what you want, and controversy, steadfastness is saying you, as a church, as a family, as a couple, as an individual, should value putting one foot in front of the other and pursuing consistently purity, holiness, and godliness. And as we look around, do we see other people in the church and say, they've got more stuff than me? Or do we look around and say, you know what I admire in this church? You know what I value in this church? is a sense of spiritual health and steadfastness and not giving upness. Do we desire more to get to the end of our lives in wealth or to get to the end of our lives with a sense of excitement and faith and passionate pursuit of God, where you're more on fire for God than when you were 20 or 30 years before. Which one are we actually desiring? And so two things that will help us pursue these characteristics. Number one, do it together. Sin is very much something that happens alone. Interestingly, covenant eyes and that whole porn thing, covenant eyes use this line, porn thrives on shame and secrets. And actually, if you're today looking to escape from some of this sin, to flee from some of it, talking to somebody else, doing it together is incredibly releasing. So pursuit of God is to do with connection in the church. I dream of having a fire pit. I live in a two-bed flat and there's no garden and we can't light any fires. And if we do, we get in a lot of trouble. But I dream of having a fire pit in my garden where people can sit around and we can spend the whole evening talking. And the last time I tried to actually light a fire... I thought, yeah, I'm going to need some practice. So Kezi's parents have got a fire in their front room, and I put a log there, and I put some stuff around it, and I lit it, and all the stuff burned, and the log didn't do anything. It kind of laughed at me. It made some noises. Um, but what you find in lighting a fire is that lots of logs together, once one catches, it works perfectly. But if you take a single log and take it out of there, although it might be on fire, it might be glistening, it might be burning up, it might be looking amazing, put on its own, not very long, actually, it totally ebbs away, doesn't it? In terms of pursuing God, just remember that. Just remember that today, that actually, if you want to be really pursuing godly character and really fleeing from sin, 
You've got to do it with other logs around you. You've got to do it with that sense of togetherness. You need to stack those logs together. As Christians in relationships, actually, maybe think about something like what we have as meetups. If you're isolated and out of things, if you're not meeting with other Christians, before long, you're down to embers. Flames can be extinguished. Some of you here already know that the high points of your spiritual life were times where you were deep in community, deep connected, on fire together. But you might also be here and know that some of the coldest times in your spiritual life have been when you've been alone. I think that speaks for itself. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. We're going to be launching a new term of meetups in a couple of weeks. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know what, my spiritual life, I'm isolated. My encouragement is, week one, sign up for something. Find a group of people who you're meeting with every week. A small enough group in a meetup where you're actually encouraging one another. You're spurring each other on. You're doing that. That doesn't just happen with somebody standing at the front giving you encouragements, does it? That's not logs together. The Christian life of faith can't be lived successfully in isolation. Okay, so that's the first one, do it together. The second one is this idea of repentance. This is the last thing we're going to look at, just what does it really mean? What does repentance mean, and how does this fit into what Paul is saying? Well, part of overall healthy spirituality, that kind of building yourself up in the gym of the Bible and the Word, some of that health comes from getting your mind changed, not just feeling bad. So I want to answer the question, what is repentance really? You might already know this morning of an area that God wants you to repent around. He might prompt you in the last few minutes, so be open. But is repenting just feeling bad? Is it just feeling like leaving here today, like head bowed? Oh dear. Is it saying sorry? Well, some years ago, I had some teaching which just covered the three C's of repentance. And I just want to give those as an explanation today. Hopefully, it'll be nice and practical. So first of all, um, before these three C's, I'd say there's no condemnation in Christ. So if you're feeling just bad about everything in your life, you think, I'm totally in despair, that's not of God. But what the Holy Spirit does is, the Holy Spirit convicts. He puts his finger just on one thing at a time and says, this is what I want you to really do some business with, maybe even today. And from then, you've got three things. Confession is the first one. So as you hear God, as you hear a preach, as you hear the word of God, you start with confession. In your mind first, you begin to say, you know what, God, you are right. I am wrong. This is unacceptable. I've gone along with the culture. Romans 12, it says, be conformed, uh, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you start in your mind to think differently. And then confession is, you say that to God and you say that to somebody else. You get it out. You speak it out. You say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I was evil. I've got no one else to blame. Today, you might say, I've been watching porn, or I've lied, I've committed adultery, I've been after money and not after God. You say it to God, you say it to someone else, and you can do that today. Fathers, husbands, men, we do this first on our marriages. When something's wrong, we're the first to say sorry, to confess. But it's possible to think and say, I'm sorry, but not to feel that different and to do the same thing over and over again. And that's where the difference between just being sorry and Christian teaching on repentance comes in. So the first one is confession, but the second one is more than just acknowledging your sin and not really seeming that bothered by it. 
The next of the three C's is contrition. So your emotions and your expression. Someone who's really contrite, they not only know categorically they've done something wrong, but they feel emotionally that they've done something wrong. If someone comes to me like that, you can tell, oh, you know, I'm genuinely in my emotions, in my expressions, the way I actually am, I'm sorry. Then you're not piling on a load of anger at them, are you? You're just saying, okay, I want to pray for you, I want to help you. It's not just saying, I feel bad, I did something bad, as if you've just missed the first five minutes of Love Island, or you've just missed the first five minutes of a football match. Contrition is saying, actually, something's gone on in your mind and your heart, and it, it means something. You're saying, man, my sin is not just breaking God's law, it's also breaking God's heart, and it's breaking the hearts of others. And then the third, so you've got confession, contrition, the third is change. Actual change. Not just going back around the loop again. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit saying, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to say that anymore. I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to be like Jesus. I want to get beyond this. I want this to die. I want to put it to death. So change is a desire to learn, to grow, to be different. Wanting the future to look different to the past. And by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can change. You can stop doing something. You can stop being like that. Maybe it's all at once. Maybe it's slowly. But practically, change means actually, I've put this as a priority, so I'm not going to make some godly friends who are going to help me. I'm going to read some godly books that are going to help me. I'm going to do that work of spiritual building up and health. It's change, working on it. It's not just being sad. It's not just worldly sorrow. But it's going to be a deep change in your nature and desire as you give your sin to Jesus. And repentance is only possible through Jesus, isn't it? There is no repentance without Jesus, without what he did for us. Yvette covered really well last week all about the freedom that we find in God. But I just want to encourage you with this practical teaching. Actually, if you're finding you do stuff wrong, you're not fleeing, but you say sorry and nothing changes, have you thought about what true Christian repentance is? Finding other people and really being able to work on change. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that's a helpful verse for us to finish. If we confess our sins, so that's to God and to each other, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so if you're a man here today, this language, a lot of it is about stepping up. It's about being a man. That's what Paul is saying Timothy to do. So don't settle. Don't be passive today. Don't be passive in your marriage. Don't be passive as a parent, as a father, as a husband. If you're a man here today, actually, we should be the first to speak up. We should be the first to say sorry. We should be the first to, the, to repent. Come to Jesus. Bring it all. Bring him. Bring everything to him. And then if you're not a believer here today and you're thinking, you know what? You mentioned something earlier on about dying in a plane crash. I wonder what my life is going to look like later. I wonder what eternity is going to be like. There is an opportunity for you to come and repent today, for you to come for the first time and say sorry to Jesus. I'd love to encourage you. Find out more about this great Jesus who truly satisfies. So in conclusion, Paul tells Timothy, be a man, stand up. That involves fleeing from greed, which makes you perpetually dissatisfied and will never be enough. It involves choosing to love God and love people, to use money and to use things. That involves fleeing from just teenage anger and from sexual 
impurity and immorality. And that involves pursuing, following after godliness, holiness, humility. And we do that not on our own. This morning, do that with other people, logs together. And we do that by repenting, not just saying sorry and leaving a little bit bummed out, but by saying this today is going to be a marker in the sand where I talk to someone else about it, where I say, all right, I'm genuinely in my mind and my heart going to change and I'm committing to changing and to cooperating with the work of God in my life to make my tomorrow different to my yesterday.